From the JAMA Network, this is the JAMA Medical News Podcast. Discussing timely topics in clinical medicine, biomedical sciences, public health, and health policy featured in the medical news section of JAMA. Hi, I'm Faiza Sanjar, editor and director of JAMA Medical News. And I'm Becky Voker. I'm associate managing editor of JAMA Medical News. Today, we're going to be discussing news highlights from the November 2019 issues of JAMA. First, we're going to start out with an article entitled Firearms and Dementia, a Big Deal and a Tough Issue. So, Becky, in this piece, you interview Dr. Emmy Betts, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine in Aurora. You both discuss her work revolving around the risks of gun ownership among people with dementia. Can you tell us a little bit about your interest in this topic and also your conversation with Dr. Betts? Sure. You know, in recent years, there's been so much news about mass shootings, and deservedly so. They're very important and becoming more common. But in the last few years, there have also been some studies that have raised the issue of dementia and firearms. And Dr. Betts has been among the authors of these studies. So we talked about how difficult it can be to approach this topic families, the patients themselves, and their caregivers, and how difficult it can be, especially when it's a police officer or a hunter, someone who has had life experience with a firearm. So it's sort of part of their identity in a way. Absolutely. And it can be very difficult, just as it's very difficult for someone to give up the keys to their car when they should no longer drive. Well, so how big of a problem is this, the risk? Dr. Betts estimated that about 40 to 60 percent of households that have a person with dementia living there also have a firearm. Oh, wow. Okay. So significant. Yeah. And so what's useful for clinicians Mm. is to bring this up maybe the same as they would about driving and giving up the keys. And particularly, too, for patients and their families to be prepared for this eventuality. So let's listen to what Dr. Betts had to say about this. For primary care physicians who are caring for older adults with cognitive impairment or early dementia, this is something that should be brought up in the same way that we bring up things like driving and general home safety. It may not be an issue on the day of diagnosis, but it probably will become one. We know that firearm ownership, like driving and like other things that can be closely tied to somebody's identity, it can be a really difficult topic to broach and a difficult topic for individuals and families to deal with. So ideally, people have time to prepare. They have time to make their own decisions. I think what we really want is for families and the person with dementia to be proactively making decisions about where the firearms are going to be stored, where they're going to go, so that it doesn't come down to getting police involved or certainly having someone get hurt. So next up is another interview, this time with our senior staff writer, Rita Rubin. Her article was entitled, Philanthropist Fund John Hopkins Center for Study of Psychedelics. Rita talks with Dr. Ronald Griffiths, a professor of behavioral biology, about the first U.S. Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research launched recently by Johns Hopkins University. 
The center was funded by $17 million from a private foundation and four philanthropists. So psychedelics in the last several years, including LSD, psilocybin, dimethyltryptamine, have been studied for their potential to treat a whole host of disorders spanning from depression, anorexia, early Alzheimer's disease to substance use disorder. So Rita and Dr. Griffiths in this interview discuss the recent history of psychedelics, the obstacles to studying these drugs, and their lasting impact on people who use them. Here's a clip with Dr. Griffiths describing the experiences people have reported having during and after psilocybin treatment. Experiences people have are those that we would expect from the classic hallucinogens, that is their visual or perceptual changes and changes in mood and cognitive function. When people have those sorts of experiences, they often report a reframing of a worldview and a sense of self to which they attribute enduring positive changes in attitudes, moods, and behaviors months after the session. People very often describe the experience as being among the most personally meaningful of their entire lives. And they'll compare it, say, to the birth of a firstborn child or the death of a parent. So there's something very unusual and unique about these experiences, and they appear to have therapeutic benefits in a number of disease entities that really are transdiagnostic. So we've given these high doses of psilocybin to people who are distressed or anxious when they have a life-threatening cancer diagnosis, and we see a large, rapid, and sustained decreases in depression and anxiety from a single session. So interestingly, Dr. Griffiths also noted the place and setting are really important for the therapeutic experience with psilocybin. That's interesting because 60 Minutes did a segment on this recently. And one woman they talked to had done the therapy to quit smoking, and she said it was awful, that she cried throughout most of it. And Dr. Griffiths himself said it can be a hell realm, which doesn't sound very pleasant. And he said it's really difficult to predict who might have a bad trip. But his associate said it happens to about a third of people who do the therapy. And they showed how it begins, not with an actual patient, but with the correspondent. Covered up in a blanket, eye shades, headphones with music, relaxed, calm, with two guides present. And this is done similar to how the LSD studies were done in the 1960s. So I guess everything old does become new again. coming full circle. (laughs) Right, right. And then kind of the other side of the coin was they talked with a stage 3 cancer patient who did the therapy. And Mm. she said afterward... Her anxiety about death was gone, which to me is really pretty profound. She said she wasn't frightened anymore and Mm -hmm. that the experience lived on within her. Wow, really impactful and long-lasting, it sounds like, Mm -hmm. but much more work to be done for sure. All right, so moving on to our next article, Food for Thought, How Certain Foods Affect Cognition, Seizures, and Cardiometabolic Disease. So Becky, tell us a little bit about the latest and greatest science behind food's effects on human health. 
Well, a lot of people out there probably know about the benefits of polyphenols in foods. Uh, they're valued for their antioxidant properties. And in this one study, blueberry and grape extracts were tested to boost memory in older people. And so the good news was that there was some improvement, but it was only for the most cognitively impaired people. Mm. But the improvement was significant. Their cognitive age improved by about 14 years. Oh, wow. Compared with only about five and a half years for the placebo group. Wow. Burning question yeah. that most people are going <laughs> to want to know is, okay, yeah. how many grapes and berries do I need to eat to reap this kind of cognitive benefit? <laughs> That's a question I can't answer. Um, <laughs> but in the study, they used extracts. Ah. And so probably highly concentrated. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something maybe a topic for future for research. Future. Great. Right. And so in our next study that we covered in the column is cilantro. And, you know, as we do our reporting on some of these studies, we can come across some fun tidbits. And in this one, it was that cilantro seeds were found in King Tut's tomb. Who wow. knew? You know, who knew? Who That's, knew? Yeah, amazing. But the actual finding is that cilantro contains a metabolite mm. that binds to a specific part of a neuronal potassium channel. Ah. And so when that happens, the channel opens, it reduces cellular excitability, and seizure activity goes down. Mm, really interesting. It is interesting. So perhaps there's a potential for new seizure drugs in this. Absolutely. And, you know, it's great that there's a explains a possible biological mechanism for sort of the historically documented effects of cilantro and, say, folk medicine and things like this. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. We'll have to keep our eyes exactly. on this. Exactly. And so our last item in the column was mushrooms, not the hallucinogenic Not kind, the though. fun kind. Okay. Nope. Uh-uh. <laughs> So some research in the past had shown that mushrooms might actually protect against cardiometabolic disease. Mm. This study kind of debunked that. Mm. It showed that eating more mushrooms didn't really have any effect on the biomarkers for cardiometabolic disease. But there were some caveats with this study overall. The mushroom consumption was kind of low, oh, okay. and it was measured only once at baseline. So this, again, is another example of a study that is ripe for more research. Wonderful. Well, mushroom lovers, hold on to that hope. More take studies. Heart. Yes, take, take, heart. take heart. Exactly. All right. So next up, we have an article entitled, Older Patients Still Left Out of Cancer Clinical Trials. This was Jen's piece, and in this piece, she unpacks a JAMA oncology study that found people 65 years and older are still strikingly underrepresented in phase three randomized multi-group clinical trials of treatments for the most common cancers, which include breast, colorectal, lung, and prostate. So the biggest problem with this, of course, is that most people diagnosed with cancer are 65 and older. So these disparities between the trial participants and the cancer population continues to be a really big problem in oncology, according to experts. In Jen's story, she also discusses strategies to address this disparity. And one of them is a National Academy of Medicine mandate that cancer research funders require investigators to have a plan for testing treatments in a population that basically mirrors the age and health risk profiles of patients with the actual cancer in question. 
And one of the other strategies being implemented is to relax eligibility requirements in trials, which can at times be quite stringent. As with every new implementation, every new initiative, there are barriers to these strategies, one of which is enforcement. Another is also geographic. So most of these clinical trials take place at major urban academic centers, and these centers aren't always easily accessible by cancer patients. Then also there's this issue of age bias, which is pervasive, I think, in general. And contrary to misconceptions, older adult patients are just as likely to be interested and eager to participate in trials as younger patients. I thought this story did a really good job to lay out the challenges of getting older people into clinical trials, but it also points out that the issue has been studied for decades now, and we've also known for decades that the population is aging, and so this makes me wonder why there has been no improvement in the past 20 or 25 years about this situation to get more people into trials, and Another thing that struck me about this story is that the outcomes that are important for older people, quality of life, Mm -hmm. functional ability, sometimes they're just not measured in these studies. And so what might be important to the patients goes beyond what the actual clinical endpoint of the study is. So it seems like this situation may make it ripe for better communication either between the investigators and the patients or even among the investigators when they do trial design. Absolutely. So this is still an issue that begs a good solution ultimately. So more to come, I'm sure. All right. So next article, study identifies primary care knowledge gaps and barriers in type 2 diabetes prevention. So Becky, this was your story. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, this is really an important issue because only about 90% of the 84 million people in the United States who have prediabetes know that they have it. So In this study, 300 physicians were surveyed, and um, it recorded their knowledge. Some surprising findings here. About 42% of these physicians knew the correct range for fasting glucose levels. Only about 31% knew the accurate HbA1c level. Oh, and those are important markers. They're very important. I presume most physicians should They're know. very important. And so not knowing these levels can lead to misdiagnoses. And so the study indicated that maybe 25% of primary care physicians could be telling their patients that they have prediabetes when they actually have diabetes. Mm-hmm. So another point raised in the study is that we know that intensive lifestyle changes, diet, exercise, some other elements, provide benefits and reduce the progression to prediabetes. But only 36% of the primary care physicians in the study chose that as their first recommendation to their patients. Oh, wow. So there's a lot of missed opportunity Uh, for prevention there. So, I mean, how long have we known about these knowledge gaps? The first studies indicating this were published 17 years ago. And so one of my sources said it was really eye-opening that this finding has been in the medical literature for this long, and it hasn't really made it into clinical practice yet. Oh, wow. 
But it is important to know that the CDC and the AMA are collaborating on ways to improve this situation. Oh, good. So silver lining here. We think we, so, we, yeah. We hope so, yes. Okay, well, last but not least, our final article that we'll be discussing is entitled The Search for the Universal Flu Vaccine Heats Up. This was another one of Jen's stories, where she discusses the recent progress that's been made towards developing a universal flu vaccine. All the experts that she spoke with pretty much came to the consensus that it's not a matter of if there will be a pandemic, but when. And interestingly, they also all concurred that we're actually more vulnerable now than in 1918 at the time of the infamous Spanish flu pandemic, which killed 50 to 100 million people within just the span of a year, which is just a staggering statistic. So right now in our toolkit, we, of course, have the seasonal flu vaccine. But the issue with the seasonal flu vaccine, of course, is that it varies in efficacy from year to year, anywhere between 10 percent to 60 percent. And developing a universal flu vaccine that could protect people against a broader collection of flu strains has really been a challenge. Here's a clip of Jen speaking about those challenges with Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Bruce Gellin of the Sabine Vaccine Institute, and Dr. Patrick Wilson of the University of Chicago. Flu is unique. It defies all the paradigms you have about, for example, measles. You either get infected with measles or you get properly vaccinated with measles and you're done. You're good to go. You're not going to get measles again. Influenza changes. It continually changes. These continuous changes are why seasonal flu vaccines are not as effective as we want them to be. So is the inherent problem with influenza or the inherent challenge with influenza that the virus itself is always changing? Yes, but it's not that simple. We have to redesign the seasonal vaccine every year. And so there's an elaborate process by which all the data from the laboratories around the world is assembled by the World Health Organization and then the CDC with the FDA to look at the viruses out there to say, based on what's out there, what should be the formula for this year's vaccine? Um, but bigger than that is this problem of the, the ability of what's referred to as shift. There's so many um, influenza variants that are in many different animal species and the capacity for segment shifts or antigenic shift um, to combine the genomes of in human influenzas with zoonotic strain influenzas could make viruses to which there's very little immunity and if that virus is created, and that virus has the ability to, to infect and to be transmissible, that's the, that's, the, that's the spark that's going to trigger a pandemic. It's that part of it that, that, that really scares people. Okay, so Jen also discussed in her story several flu vaccine candidates under development, one of which is being spearheaded by the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. And this particular candidate is based on essentially a structural element of the flu virus that is conserved between strains. And this particular conserved element is called the hemagglutinin stock. So the idea is, is that if this is introduced to the host, that you'll develop a reaction against that very specific structural, conserved structural element that would potentially protect against a much broader variety of flu strains. 
I thought it was also encouraging that one of the candidate vaccines mentioned protected older adults for up to three years. Oh, wow. Given that we all know the immune system weakens over time, that's a really positive finding, I think. Yeah, and elderly individuals are also at much higher risk of complications from flu as well. So this is very promising. Yeah, and it's also encouraging that a global consortium is collaborating now on a universal vaccine development. Oh, wonderful. But in the meantime, I wonder about public acceptance. You had mentioned the efficacy rates. Yeah. And, you know, the general public hears some years that the vaccine is maybe 30 or 35 percent effective, and they can get kind of turned off and think, why should I get a vaccine? What's the point? Yeah. Why should (laughs) I go through that shot (laughs) if all I'm going to have is, you know, a one-third chance maybe of avoiding the flu? So when a universal vaccine is available, an aggressive vaccination campaign to get the public on board with this is going to be really important. Absolutely. Definitely discriminating between the old seasonal flu vaccine and sort of the new holy grail universal flu vaccine is going to be really important and getting that message across that this isn't your grandmother's flu vaccine. Certainly, that'll be important when the time comes. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's all we have for you in this month's roundup. Hopefully, you will join us next month. You can find all the articles we've discussed here at JAMA.com. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you.